Chapter Five of the Countess of Charny by Alexandre Dumas, translated by Henry L. Williams. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Uninvited Visitors. All day long, a man in general's uniform was riding about the Saint Antoine suburb, on a large Flanders horse, shaking hands right and left, kissing the girls and treating the men to drink. This was one of Lafayette's half dozen airs. The small change of the commander of the National Guard, Battalion Commander Santerre. Beside him rode on a fiery charger, like an aide next his general, a stout man who might, by his dress, be taken to be a well-to-do farmer. A scar tracked his brow, and he had as gloomy an eye and scowling a face as the battalion commander had an open countenance and frank smile. "'Get ready, my good friends. Watch over the nation.' against which traitors are plotting but we are on guard santerre kept saying what are we to do friend santerre asked the working men you know that we are all your own where are the traitors lead us at them wait the proper time has not come when will it strike santerre did not know a word about it so he replied at a hazard keep ready we'll let you know but the man who rode by his knee bending down over the horse's neck would make signs to some men and whisper june twenty whereupon these men would call groups of twenty or so around each and repeat the date to them so that it would be circulated nobody knew what would be done on the twentieth of june but all felt sure that something would happen on that day. By whom was this mob moved, stirred, and excited? By a man of powerful build, leonine mane and roaring voice, whom Santerre was to find waiting in his brewery office, Danton. None better than this terrible wizard of the revolution could evoke terror from the slums and hurl it into the old palace of Catherine de' Medici's. Danton was the gong of riots. The blow he received he imparted vibratingly to all the multitude around him. Through Hibert he was linked to the populace, as by the Duke of Orléans he was affixed to the throne. Whence came his power, doomed to be so fatal to royalty? To the Queen, the spiteful Austrian who had not liked Lafayette to be mayor of Paris, but preferred Petion the Republican, who had no sooner brought back the fugitive king to the Tuileries than he set to watch him closely. Petion had made his two friends, Manuel and Danton, the public prosecutor and the vice, respectively. On the 20th of June, under the pretext of presenting a petition to the king and raising a liberty pole, the palace was to be stormed. The adepts alone knew that France was to be saved from the Lafayettes and the Moderates, and a warning to be given to the incorrigible monarch that there are some political tempests in which a vessel may be swamped with all hands aboard. That is, a king be overwhelmed with throne and family as in the oceanic abysses. Belay knew more than Santerre when he accompanied him on his tour after presenting himself as from the committee. 
Danton called on the brewer to arrange for the meeting of the popular leaders that night at Charenton, for the march on the morrow, presumably to the house, but really to the Tuileries. The watchword was, Have done with the palace! But the way remained vague. On the evening of the 19th, the queen saw a woman clad in scarlet, with a belt full of pistols, gallop bold and terrible along the main streets. It was Tyroini Maricor, the beauty of Liege, who had gone back to her native country to help its rebellion. But the Austrians had caught her and kept her imprisoned for eighteen months. She returned mysteriously to be at the bloody feast of the coming day. The courtesan of opulence, she was now the beloved of the people. From her noble lovers had come the funds for her costly weapons, which were not all for show. Hence the mob hailed her with cheers. From the Tuileries garret, where the queen had climbed on hearing the uproar, she saw tables set out in the public squares and wine broached. Patriotic songs were sung, and at every toast fists were shaken at the palace. Who were the guests? The Federals of Marseilles, led by Barbaroux, who brought with them the song worth an army, the Marseillaise Hymn of Liberty. Day breaks early in June. At five o'clock, the battalions were marshaled, for the insurrection was regularized by this time and had a military aspect. The mob had chiefs, submitted to discipline, and fell into assigned places under flags. Santerre was on horseback, with his staff of men from the working district. Belay did not leave him, for the occult power of the Invisibles charged him to watch over him. Of the three corps into which the forces were divided, Santerre commanded the first, saint Herouge the second, and Teroigny the last. About eleven, on an order brought by an unknown man, the immense mass started out. It numbered some twenty thousand when it left the Bastille Square. It had a wild, odd, and horrible look. Santerre's battalion was the most regular, having many in uniform and muskets and bayonets among the weapons. But the other two were armed mobs, haggard, thin, and in rags from three years of revolutions and four of famine. Neither had uniforms nor muskets, but tattered coats and smocks, quaint arms snatched up in the first impulse of self-defense and anger, pikes, cooking spits, jagged spears, hiltless swords, knives lashed to long poles, broad axes, stone masons' hammers and courier's knives. For standards, a gallows with a dangling doll meant for the queen, a bull's head with an obscene card stuck on the horns, a calf's heart on a spit with the motto, an aristocrat's, while flags showed the legends, sanction the decrees or death, recall the patriotic ministers, tremble, tyrant, your hour has come. At every crossing, and from each byway the army was swollen. The mass was silent, save now and then when a cheer burst from the midst, or a snatch of the It Shall Go On was sung, or cries went up of The Nation Forever, Long Live the Breechless, Down with Old Vito and Madame Vito. They came out for sport. 
to frighten the king and queen and did not mean murdering they demanded to march past the assembly through the hall and for three hours they defiled under the eyes of their representatives it was three o'clock the mob had obtained half their program the placing of their petition before the assembly the next thing was to call on the king for his sanction to the decree as the assembly had received them how could the king refuse surely he was not a greater potentate than the speaker of the house whose chair was like his and in the grander place in fact the king assented to receiving their deputation of twenty as the common people had never entered the palace they merely expected their representatives would be received while they marched by under the windows they would show the king their banners with the odd devices and the gory standards all the palace garden gates were closed in the yards and gardens were soldiers with four field pieces seeing this apparently ample protection the royal family might be tranquil still without any evil idea the crowd asked for the gates to be opened which allowed entrance on the fouillance terrace three municipal officers went in and got leave from the king for passage to be given over the terrace and out by the stable doors everybody wanted to go in as soon as the gates were open and the throng spread over the lawn it was forgotten to open the outlet by the stables and the crush began to be severe they streamed before the national guards in a row along the palace wall to the carousel gates by which they might have resumed the homeward route they were locked and guarded sweltering crushed and turned about the mob began to be irritated before its growls the gates were opened and the men spread over the capacious square there they remembered what the main affair was to petition the king to revoke his veto instead of continuing the road they waited in the square for an hour when they grew impatient they might have gone away but that was not the aim of the agitators who went from group to group saying stay what do you want to sneak away for the king is going to give his sanction if we were to go home without that we should have all our work to do over again the level-headed thought this sensible advice but at the same time that the sanction was a long time coming they were getting hungry and that was the general cry bread was not so dear as it had been but there was no work going on and however cheap bread may be it is not made for nothing everybody had risen at five workmen and their wives with their children and come to the palace with the idea that they had but to get the royal sanction to have hard times end but the king did not seem to be at all eager to give his sanction it was hot and thirst began to be felt hunger thirst and heat drive dogs mad yet the poor people waited and kept patient but those next to the railings set to shaking them a municipal officer made a speech to them citizens this is the king's residence and to enter with arms is to violate it the king is quite ready to receive your petition but only from twenty deputies bearing it what had not their deputation sent in an hour ago been attended to yet 
Suddenly loud shouts were heard on the streets. It was Santerre, Billet, and Herouge on their horses, and Torrini riding on her cannon. "'What are you fellows hanging round this gate for?' queried Herouge. "'Why do you not go right in?' "'Just so. Why haven't we?' said the thousands. "'Can't you see it is fast?' cried several voices. Tironi jumped off her cannon, saying, "'The barker is full to the muzzle. Let's blow the old gate open.' "'Wait, wait!' shouted two municipal officers. "'No roughness! It shall be opened to you!' Indeed, by pressing on the spring catch, they released the two gates, which drew aside and the mass rushed through. Along with them came the cannon, which crossed the yard with them, mounted the steps and reached the head of the stairs in their company. Here stood the city officials in their scarfs of office. "'What do you intend doing with a piece of artillery?' they challenged. "'Great guns in the royal apartments. Do you believe anything is to be gained by such violence?' "'Quite right,' said the ringleaders, astonished themselves to see the gun there, and they turned it round to get it downstairs. The hub caught on the jam, and the muzzle gaped on the crowd. "'Why, hang them all! They have got cannon all over the palace!' commented the newcomers, not knowing their own artillery. Police magistrate Mouchet, a deformed dwarf, ordered the men to chop the wheel clear, and they managed to hack the door jam away so as to free the piece which was taken down to the yard. This led to the report that the mob were smashing all the doors in. Some two hundred noblemen ran to the palace, not with the hope of defending it, but to die with the king whose life they deemed menaced. Prominent among these was a man in black, who had previously offered his breast to the assassin's bullet, and who always leaped like a last lifeguard between danger and the king, from whom he had tried to conjure it. This was Gilbert. After being excited by the frightful tumult, the king and queen became used to it. It was half-past three, and it was hoped that the day would close with no more harm done. Suddenly the sound of the axe-blows was heard above the noise of clamor, like the howling of a coming tempest. A man darted into the king's sleeping-room and called out, "'Sire, let me stand by you, and I will answer for all.' It was Dr. Gilbert seen at almost periodical intervals, and in all the striking situations of the tragedy and play. "'Oh, doctor, is this you? What is it?' King and Queen spoke together. "'The palace is surrounded, and the people are making this uproar and wanting to see you.' "'We shall not leave you, sire,' said the Queen and Princess Elizabeth. "'Will the king kindly allow me for an hour such power as a captain has over his ship?' asked Gilbert. "'I grant it,' replied the monarch. "'Madame, hearken to Dr. Gilbert's advice, and obey his orders if needs must.' He turned to the doctor. "'Will you answer to me for the queen and the dauphine?' "'I do, or I shall die with them.' "'It is all a pilot can say in the tempest.' The queen wished to make a last effort, but Gilbert barred the way with his arm. "'Madame,' 
he said. "'It is you and not the king who run the real danger. "'Rightly or wrongly, they accuse you of the king's resistance, "'so that your presence will expose him without defending him. "'Be the lightning conductor. "'Divert the bolt, if you can.' "'Then let it fall on me. "'But save my children.' I have answered for you, and them to the king. Follow me. He said the same to Princess Lambaya, who had returned lately from London and the other ladies, and guided them to the council hall, where he placed them in a window recess with the heavy table before them. The queen stood behind her children, innocence protecting unpopularity, although she wished it to be the other way. All is well thus said Gilbert, in the tone of a general commanding a decisive operation. "'Do not stir!' There came a pounding at the door, which he threw open with both folds, and as he knew there were many women in the crowd, he cried, "'Walk in, citizenesses! The queen and her children await you!' The crowd burst in as through a broken dam. "'Where is the Austrian? Where is the Lady Vito?' demanded five hundred voices. It was the critical moment. "'Be calm,' said Gilbert to the queen, knowing that all was in heaven's hand and man was as nothing. "'I need not recommend you to be kind.' Preceding the others was a woman with her hair down, who brandished a saber. She was flushed with rage, perhaps from hunger. "'Where is the Austrian cat?' "'She shall die by no hand but mine!' she screamed. "'This is she,' said Gilbert, taking her by the hand and leading her up to the queen. "'Have I ever done you a personal wrong?' demanded the latter in her sweetest voice. "'I cannot say you have,' faltered the woman of the people, amazed at the majesty and gentleness of Marie Antoinette. "'Then—' Why should you wish to kill me? Folks told me that you were the ruin of the nation, faltered the abashed young woman, lowering the point of her saber to the floor. Then you were told wrong. I married your king of France, and am mother of the prince whom you see here. I am a French woman, one who will never more see the land where she was born. In France alone I must dwell, happy or unhappy. Alas, I was happy when you loved me. And she sighed. The girl dropped the sword and, and wept. Beg your pardon, madame, but I did not know what you were like. I see you are a good sort after all. Keep on like that, prompted Gilbert. And not only will you be saved, but all these people will be at your feet in an hour. Entrusting her to some national guardsmen and the war minister, who came in with the mob, he ran to the king. Louis had gone through a similar experience. On hastening toward the crowd as he opened the bull's-eye room, the door panels were dashed in, and pikes, bayonets, and axes showed their points and edges. Open the doors! cried the king. 
servants heaped up chairs before him and four grenadiers stood in front but he made them put up their swords as the flash of steel might seem a provocation a ragged fellow with a knife-blade set on a pole darted at the king yelling take that for your veto one grenadier who had not yet sheathed his sword struck down the stick with the blade but it was the king who entirely recovering self-command put the soldier aside with his hand and said let me stand forward sir what have i to fear amid my people taking a forward step louis the sixteenth with a majesty not expected in him and a courage strange heretofore in him offered his breast to the weapons of all sorts directed against him hold your noise thundered a stentorian voice in the midst of the awful din i want a word in here a cannon might have vainly sought to be heard in this clamor but at this voice all the vociferation ceased this was the butcher legendre he went up almost to touching the king while they formed a ring around the two just then on the outer edge of the circle a man made his appearance and behind the dread double of danton the king recognized gilbert pale and serene of face the questioning glance implying what have you done with the queen was answered by the doctor's smile to the effect that she was in safety he thanked him with a nod sirrah began legendre this expression which seemed to indicate that the sovereign was already deposed made the latter turn as if a snake had stunned him yes sir i am talking to you veto went on legendre just listen to us for it is our turn to have you hear us you are a double dealer who have always cheated us and would try it again so look out for yourself the measure is full and the people are tired of being your plaything and victim well i am listening to you sir rejoined the king and a good thing too do you know what we have come here for to ask the sanction of the decrees and the recall of the ministers here is our petition see taking a paper from his pocket he unfolded it and read the same menacing lines which had been heard in the house with his eyes fixed on the speaker the king listened and said when it was ended without the least apparent emotion sir i shall do what the laws and the constitution order me to do come on broke in a voice the constitution is your high horse which lets you block the road of the whole country to keep france indoors for fear of being trampled on and wait till the austrians come up to cut her throat the king turned toward this fresh voice comprehending that it was a worse danger gilbert also made a movement and laid his hand on the speaker's shoulder i have seen you somewhere before friend remarked the king who are you he looked with more curiosity than fear though this man wore a front of terrible resolution ay you have seen me before sire three times once when you were brought back from versailles next at varennes 
and the last time here sire bear my name in mind for it is of ill omen it is belay at this the shouting was renewed and a man with a lance tried to stab the king but belay seized the weapon tore it from the wielder's grip and snapped it across his knee no foul play he said only one kind of steel has the right to touch this man the axe of the executioner i hear that a king of england had his head cut off by the people whom he betrayed you ought to know his name louis don't you forget it sh belay muttered gilbert oh you may say what you like returned belay shaking his head this man is going to be tried and doomed as a traitor yes a traitor yelled a hundred voices traitor traitor gilbert threw himself in between fear nothing sire and try by some material token to give satisfaction to these madmen taking the physician's hand the king laid it on his heart you see that i fear nothing he said i receive the sacraments this morning let them do what they like with me as for the material sign which you suggest i should display are you satisfied taking the red cap from a bystander he set it on his own head the multitude burst into applause hurrah for the king shouted all the voices a fellow broke through the crowd and held up a bottle if fat old vito loves the people as much as he says prove it by drinking our health do not drink whispered a voice it may be poisoned drink sire i answer for the honesty said gilbert the king took the bottle and saying to the health of the people he drank fresh cheers for the king resounded sire you have nothing to fear said gilbert allow me to return to the queen go said the other gripping his hand more tranquil the doctor hastened to the council hall where he breathed still easier after one glance the queen stood in the same spot the little prince like his father was wearing the red cap in the next room was a great hubbub it was the reception of santerre who rolled into the hall where is this austrian wench demanded he gilbert cut slanting across the hall to intercept him hello dr gilbert said he quite joyfully who has not forgotten that you were one of those who opened the bastille doors to me replied the doctor let me present you to the queen present me to the queen growled the brewer you will not refuse will you faith i'll not i was going to introduce myself but as you are in the way monsieur santerre needs no introduction interposed the queen i know how at the famine time he fed at his sole expense half the saint antoine suburb santerre stopped astonished then his glance happening to fall embarrassed on the dauphin 
whose perspiration was running down his cheeks, he roared, "'Here, take that sweater off, the boy. Don't you see he is smothering?' The queen thanked him with a look. He leaned on the table and, bending toward her, he said in an undertone, "'You have a lot of clumsy friends, madame. I could tell you of some who would serve you better.' An hour afterward all the mob had flowed away, and the king, accompanied by his sister, entered the room where the queen and his children awaited him. She ran to him and threw herself at his feet, while the children seized his hands and all acted as though they had been saved from a shipwreck. It was only then that the king noticed that he was wearing the red cap. "'Oh,' he said, "'I had forgotten!' Snatching it off with both hands, he flung it far from him with disgust. The evacuation of the palace was as dull and dumb as the taking had been gleeful and noisy. Astonished at the little result, the mob said, "'We have not made anything. We shall have to come again.' In fact, it was too much for a threat, and not enough for an attempt on the king's life. Louis had been judged on his reputation— and recalling his flight to Varennes disguised as a serving-man, they had thought that he would hide under a table at the first noise, and might be done to death in the scuffle, like Polonius behind the Arras. Things had happened otherwise. Never had the monarch been calmer, never so grand. In the height of the threats and the insults he had not ceased to say, "'Behold your king!' The royalists were delighted for, to tell the truth, they had carried the day. End of chapter 5 Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia